0: Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and this week, I'm joined by two guests. The first is Ian Lance, who's co-manager of the Temple Bar Investment Trust, who has some interesting things to say about the current rotation between value and growth in the markets and why he thinks we're approaching an interesting juncture in that dynamic. And secondly, by Emma Bird, who is the commercial property analyst at Winterflood Securities. She's going to be talking about the latest results from commercial property trusts. Before that, however, I'm going to quickly talk about the markets, and later on, we'll summarize some of the main corporate announcements in the investment trust world that we had this week. It has been a quiet week, a lot of the big name fund managers are away on holiday. August often sees a relatively low amount of trading, and this week has been no exception. There have been some interesting and important results from uh, some well-known investment trusts, uh, particularly in the North American sector, and I shall be uh, talking about those in a moment, and also uh, from BlackRock World Mining and some updates from private equity and renewable energy trusts. In terms of the market as a whole, as I said, it's been a relatively quiet week, But culminating today, Friday, when I'm recording this, the most anticipated announcement has been the speech by Jay Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, at the Jackson Hole Central Bankers Summit in Wyoming, which is held every year. Markets have been waiting to see whether there would be any change in the Federal Reserve's policy of raising interest rates quite sharply to choke off the big surge in inflation we've seen this year. Uh, And the short answer from Mr. Powell is that there will be no change. They're going to stick to their policy of raising interest rates until they're confident that inflation has begun to ease. In terms of the markets this week, uh, while it's been quiet on the news front, uh, at least until today when Mr. Powell made his speech, it's been not a great week for the investment trust sector. In the first four days of the week, down by around 1.8%, which is slightly better than the UK FTSE or share index, which is down just a little bit over 1%. And the average discount on investment trust has widened out from 9.1% to around 10%. Uh, that means it is now trading overall uh, at a level which, apart from crisis periods like the pandemic, is pretty much above its long term average for recent years. So the sector has been feeling the full weight of the market sell-off we've had for most of this year. Following Mr. Powell's speech, the week has ended with quite a dramatic move in the U.S. stock market. The news came rather too late to affect the U.K. market to a significant extent. But uh, the S&P 500 and uh, other uh, U.S. equity indices sold off very sharply on Friday after his confirmation that the Fed wasn't going to change its tune anytime soon. A bit of a surprise in one sense, since that had been uh, quite well trailed, that he was unlikely that the Fed would change its course. But even so, the S&P 500 was often by more than 3%, which is a significant one-day move, to end the week quite sharply down. Uh, and bond yields came back a little bit as well. They eased, uh, but they have gone back up to 3.2% uh, earlier in the week, which is uh, close to their uh, highest level so far this year, but they have retreated somewhat on the immediate reaction to Mr. Powell's news. So it's going to be an interesting autumn as the big name managers come back from the beach have to see how, where they want to take the market from here. Arguments on both sides, as always, but uh, we will have to uh, see how that pans out. Uh, I may say comments on that myself in the Moneymakers Circle notebook this week. So now I'm pleased to be joined by uh, Ian Lance, who is co-manager of the Temple Bar Investment Trust, took over the management of that trust with his uh, colleagues in October 2020, two years ago, just after the pandemic sell-off. I've been tracking your progress uh, since then. The trust has done pretty well, actually. It's up, uh, well, I say very well, it's up more than 60% in NAV terms and slightly more in share price terms as the discount has come in a little bit as well. You must be pleased with that uh, that progress to date, at least. Yeah, we, yeah, we're very pleased with that, yeah. And of course, you are known as being a, a value investor, for better or worse. You could define that many ways, but you're interested, obviously, in companies and shares that have relatively low PEs and, uh, in some cases, relatively high dividends, uh, certainly uh, compared to their growth prospects. But you've been uh, you picked up this week on some interesting research that I'd also seen earlier this year from uh, a well-known US fund manager and researcher. Uh, And perhaps you might just talk us through that because it made three very interesting points. And I think uh, it will be ones that our listeners would be very interested to hear. The first one, I think, is about the impact of rising interest rates, obviously the dominant feature of this year's uh, market environment and uh, what relationship they have with value investing as a style.
1: Yeah, the reason I thought this was so fascinating that the paper was done by a chap called Cliff Asnes, who works for a, a firm called AQR in the US is that I've actually used this argument myself in the, in the last few years. The argument being that value only does well when interest rates go up and, and growth does well as interest rates come down. And the logic is that growth stocks tend to be long duration assets because more of their cash flows are in the future, um, whereas value stocks tend to be short duration assets. And that's why you would expect growth stocks to do better as interest rates come down. Cliff Asmis is a quant. Uh, He's actually gone back and looked at the data. And the amazing fact is that there's actually no relationship at all between value performance and interest rates. And when I say none at all, uh, I guess for the geeks amongst us, the R squared is 0.1. So statistically speaking, there is just no relationship, and that I have to say, I, I, I found that fascinating myself because, as I say, I, I I actually believed that there
0: was this correlation until then. It's certainly widely believed by uh, by many investors. And uh, I guess if they do believe it, then that can have an influence on share prices in the short term. But what you're saying is that actually there is no direct relationship, or at least historically there hasn't been. The second point I think he made in that research was interesting, was the question of relative valuations between value and growth. Because obviously, regardless of the interest rate environment, it does matter a lot where we are in terms of valuations between those two different types of stocks. So uh, what what did he have to say there?
1: Well, he... He, he maps the gap in the valuations effectively between the growth court and the value cohort. And actually, what he says in this paper is that basically we're, uh, we're at the 98th percentile, which is effectively he's saying value has only been cheaper for 2% of the time over the period that he looked at. So, you know, value obviously had a rally, I suppose, post-COVID and post-its opening up. Um, growth has done a little bit better in the last few months. And effectively, what he's saying is that we're now back at the point where value looks very, very cheap, as I say, only been cheaper 2% of the time.
0: Right. And if we rule out the fact that that's got nothing to do with interest rates, uh, it must be something to do with uh, behavioral aspects, I guess, you know, uh, how uh, investors react to what they think is happening. And uh, I guess part of that is the the idea that uh, the more badly that value stocks do, uh, the more people are inclined to think they'll go on forever.
1: Yes, I think so. I think there's always extrapolation there. He does actually allude to another interesting point, Jonathan, which is this one about duration. And actually, he looked at the difference in earnings growth between the growth cohorts and the value cohorts. And incredibly, the difference is only about 4% per annum. And that 4% per annum comes in the first two years. Beyond year five, there's statistically speaking no real difference in earnings growth between the growth cohort and the value cohort. And so what people are doing is they're sort of extrapolating that early earnings growth forward and assuming that it will continue into the future. Whereas historically, that just hasn't been the case. And of course, If you do that, that's what leads you to pay much higher valuations for growth stocks than than probably is warranted. And I suppose the final thing that I would add is that we've seen this big rally, haven't we, in growth stocks, NASDAQ in particular over the last few months. And I just went back and I looked at the, uh, the NASDAQ. Uh, decline from 2000 onwards and what I found fascinating is that during the two-year period in which Nasdaq lost 78% there were two rallies of 40% and four rallies of over 30% and yet the thing still lost about 80% over two years so each of those was actually wasn't a turning point it was a classic bear market rally and actually it was a fabulous opportunity to get out and my own view is that we're seeing another one of those today.
0: So what you're saying is obviously we know that uh, growth stocks and, and all those trusts that invest in a sort of distinctive uh, growth style got sort of pretty well hammered in the first Uh, five and a half months of this year. But since mid-June, we've had this rally and they've all come sort of back and suddenly people are saying, oh, well, look, it's all over. Now we can get back in again. And what you're saying is, uh, be careful, I would say, be careful about assuming that's the case, right? Exactly right.
1: Exactly right. This is
0: not what uh, what often happens. However, to do that, we've got to believe that there is some kind of fundamental change in the investment environment going on uh, if things aren't going to carry on the way that they have been going on for many years. And I guess the obvious explanation is that... Uh, we've got this high inflation. Uh, we've had the problem of the war in Ukraine. So even if you're right, though, that this is a good moment in which to switch from uh, growth to value as a style, uh, it's still pretty tough out there, right? It's not going to. It doesn't mean that you're going to make a lot of money necessarily out of value stocks, at least in the short term, because we've got to get through this very challenging winter. Yeah, would you, you agree with that?
1: You, you just hit the nail on the head when you said it, in this time frame, I think. Basically, it depends on your time frame as an investor. If your time frame is sort of three to five years, which certainly ours is, and personally, I think that's how most people should should think about investing, um, you're seeing some amazing bargains at the moment. You know, if your style is trying to guess where earnings are going to go in the next few months and trying to guess how sentiment is going to react to those earnings, then yeah, we, we could be in for another few months. But again, to give you a, an example, Jonathan, we've got a chart actually, and it maps the gap in valuation between the... Uh, defensive stocks in the UK market and cyclical stocks in the UK market, and we've got that going back beyond 2000. And the point that we're at today is exactly the same gap that we had in in 2000, in 911 during the financial crisis, uh, during 2013 during COVID, and we're back there today. And on each of those occasions, the right thing to do was buy not buy defensives. You know, you were moving. People had already done that trade. People had already pushed up the valuation of defensives and pushed down the valuation of cyclicals. And that's where, basically where we think we are today. We think the opportunities are in cyclicals. And, uh, you know, just, just to finish off, when I look down our top 10, I have rarely ever seen such low valuations. Literally in our, our top 10 goes Shell P ratio four times, BP P ratio four times, Anglo-American P ratio five times. And, you know, the list just goes on and on and on. We, we, we've rarely ever seen those sorts of valuations.
0: That is indeed a, a very striking statistic. I think what you're saying is that when you look back in three years' time with hindsight, you'll find that these were very good uh, entry levels for these uh, particular kind of stocks, or for a, a trust that has your particular style of investment.
1: I think so, yeah. I think that will be the case.
0: Good. Well, let's hope so. So just turning to your, uh, your trust and how its performance since you took over the management of it, as I said, the absolute performance has been good. Obviously, you took it over at a very good moment. In hindsight, it was uh, after the pandemic sell off. And so you you timed that very well. But in terms of how you do, you recently published your interim results. And uh, for the six months, which has obviously been a very difficult period, the NAV was down about 4%, I think, but the share price was roughly flat uh, as the discount came in a little bit. But you have actually increased the dividend. Obviously, people who own UK equity income trusts, of which you are one, they're very interested in the dividend yield and its sustainability. And I think uh, the board is predicting a full year dividend of 9p per share, which I think works out uh, prospectively as on the current share price of 220 odd p, about 4%. So you're now in line with the sector, having been a little bit behind it. What's behind that uh, increase in the dividend? And uh, you know, what are the prospects looking forward for dividend growth, given what you're saying about the outlook for your style of investing?
1: I suppose the big sector exposures within the trust are energy, uh, mining and financials. And in all three of those areas, obviously, we we had a situation where, you know, dividends were cut a couple of years ago. But dividends are now coming back very, very rapidly. And and that's basically one of the things that's driving the recovery in the dividends for the trust. And as things stand today, you know, I, I, I see no reason why that shouldn't Continue. And the reason I say that is that if you take the example of the energy companies, because they are not pouring money into capital expenditure at the moment, the capital discipline is very good. They're on free cash flow yields of about 20% at the current oil price. So they're generating 20% of their market cap in free cash flow. So that's before the dividends. Paying out, you know, the dividend yields are about 5%. So so you can see that the cover there is absolutely enormous. And As long as the oil price doesn't collapse from this level, and we don't think it's going to collapse, there is enormous dividend cover. And so, so actually what we're seeing is we're seeing lots of special dividends get paid as well. We're seeing share buybacks Uh, etc etc so and we're seeing that actually amongst the banks as well jonathan which i think is quite interesting people might have thought that you know going into an earnings downturn uh, the banks would be vulnerable but i think people sort of fail to recognize that they are completely different beasts to, to, to those that they were 10 years ago the balance sheets are so much better the loan books so much better all the financial ratios are better and therefore they as well are paying up very healthy dividends at the moment
0: so in other words, even if we have a tough winter, we are going to have a tough winter. I think obviously we know that even if there is some people think there's going to be a recession, there's certainly going to be high inflation. But you are reasonably confident uh, notwithstanding that, that uh, the dividend potential of the company, the kind of companies you're owning is still pretty good.
1: I think so. And I would also add that um, you'll know uh, if you went back a few years, um, the income sector used to be one of the most popular sectors in the UK market. You know, used to be one of the areas that people really would turn to and then of course we went through this crazy period didn't we where you know markets were just seemingly going up 20% per annum and in that sort of environment people almost thought well why do I need dividend income I can just you know my capital gain is 20% per annum I'll just bank some of my capital gain each year and turn that into income and I think if if we are moving to a new environment in which you can't rely on that happening and personally I do think we are then I think dividend income is going to become important again And, and, and I do think we might see investors go back to focusing back on dividend income as a, as a sort of key driver of their returns.
0: Yes, indeed. And of course, uh, if you're a retired person or if you're someone who relies on your income from your portfolio, we have to reckon with the fact that if inflation does reach 10 or 15% or even whatever the Bank of England is saying, your dividend yield is still going to be below the rate of inflation. So that then raises the question of whether the companies you're investing in can actually increase their dividends sufficiently to compensate for that is that likely obviously perhaps not in the short term but over time you would expect to see that if we get persistent inflation
1: yeah obviously it varies by company but you know going back to that example of the energy companies when you're on a free cash flow yield of 20 if you wanted to you could pay out 10 and buy back 10% of your shares couldn't you and therefore mathematically the dividend would increase by 10% the following years so you would have got a a 10% dividend yield and a 10% Dividend growth. Now, I'm sorry, that is not a forecast. I should make that clear. But I'm just I suppose I'm just trying to point out that there is ample scope for these companies at the moment to pay higher dividends and to grow that dividend as well. So I do think that they're in a sweet spot. And, 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 you know, the final, I suppose, obvious thing to say is that the fundamentals of those companies are very good. You know, th- those are the sorts of companies which tend to do well in an inflationary environment, the, the energy companies, the mining companies and, and to a certain extent financials.
0: Two other quick questions, then Ian, before I let you go. Number one is: On you say that do you think that equity income is going to come back into favour, or at least you you believe so? Your trust has been buying back shares, still buying back shares. You have a kind of discount control philosophy. I don't think it's actually a, a clearly formalized uh, target, is it? But uh, you have a philosophy. Um, so it will still take a bit of time for your shares to get back to a point where perhaps they are trading around NAV again. What do, what do you think the prospects are there? And you're obviously doing a lot of marketing, but uh, is the message getting home yet? It's starting
1: to. I think the problem that we've got is that growth did so well and value did so badly for so long that the people have almost sort of come to expect that to continue forever, haven't they? And, you know, to a certain extent, this rally in the summer, I think, I think a lot of people are saying, you know, well, well there we go then. The, you know, the value rally was flashing the pan and we're back to the normal environment. And I don't think we've reached the point yet where actually we've had real capitulation amongst the sort of, you know, the big growth investors. I'm certainly not hearing about, you know, major outflows from the big growth fund management houses. And, and vice versa, actually, I've not really seen, you know, big inflows into the into the value fund manager there aren't that many value fund managers left actually but I don't think they're attracting big uh, inflows and I suppose, I suppose if I'm being optimistic what I would say is that's still to come I think eventually we will get to the point where people do you know fall back into love with whether it's uh, income investing or value investing however you want to describe it and I guess as that starts to take hold you know that's the sort of thing that will potentially move the discounts on some of these trusts
0: OK, so final question is, I can't uh, resist asking you this one. <laughs> I mean, you are a UK investment trust. We have got a new prime minister coming in. There are some people, I have to confess to be one of them, who think that a lot of the things that are being talked about, that the new prime minister will do are kind of fantasy land. Sterling has weakened quite a lot, but it may be worth just reminding people what the impact of Sterling, if it gets worse, this kind of uh, you know loss of faith in the UK's perhaps magic political solutions that are being waved around. How does that affect your trust and its performance?
1: By and large, it tends to be positive. You think about most of the companies in there, most of them are big multinationals who earn significant amounts of their money in dollars. And therefore, from a translation point of view, you know that tends to be a positive for those companies. And actually for the dividends as well, for the dividends coming back to the UK companies. And, that, and most of them are not very reliant on the... UK economy. There are some, let, you know. Let's be absolutely clear. We own, uh, we own Royal Mail, we own Marks and Spencers, we own Currys. So we do have some domestic cyclicals, and you, you'd expect us to, given what I was saying about the valuation of those companies. But the big multinationals, it, it tends to be a positive for them.
0: And you're not worried about government intervention. I mean, you know, there's been talk about windfall profit taxes and so on. You know, high oil prices, high gas prices, and so on and so forth. Is that a concern for you? <laughs>
1: Ironically, uh, I mean, I think windfall taxes are a terrible idea, absolutely terrible idea. Um, The problem we have at the moment is lack of investment. You know, we have a chart in our deck which shows... The upstream CapEx spending by the largest 40 oil companies in the world, that figure's gone from $600 billion to about $200 billion over the last 10 years. If people want to know why the gas price is going up, that is why the gas price is going up. 10 years of chronic underinvestment in the fossil fuel industry. And anyone who thinks that the answer to underinvestment is to hit those companies with windfall taxes is sadly mistaken. And actually, I find it quite depressing that our politicians seem to be so enamored with just doing what's um, what's politically popular over what's sensible. And it slightly depresses me, actually, that when we, these leadership debates, I haven't heard anyone asking the question about what are you going to do to encourage North Sea investment? What are you going to do to encourage fracking? You know, what we need to do is, is actually increase investment into those sorts of areas so that we've got secure supplies of gas in this country. We're not reliant on, you know, countries such as Russia for our energy. And, and that conversation just doesn't seem to be taking place at all. Now, of course... As a, an investor in the energy companies, that's it's sort of depressing, but good, because actually the last thing that we want, we want to see potentially is them, you know, their capital expenditure really starting to take off because that's normally signals the top of the cycle. Uh, at the moment, it's not happening and, and there, there just seems no evidence that the politicians are going to try to address that. Sadly,
0: I feel you're right. So, Ian, mm-hmm. thank you so much for spending uh, time with this time with you. It's been very interesting. And, uh, well, let's hope that you're, you're right about your prognosis for uh, the kind of investing that you do. Yes, so thank you very too. much, Jonathan. So those are the views of Ian Lance, co-manager of the Temple Bar Investment Trust, sounding pretty confident about the medium to longer term prospects for his style of value investing. But like the rest of us, uh, still pretty unclear about what's going to happen over the next six months, which are going to be a very difficult period for the global economy as we head into a tough winter with soaring energy prices and uh, the issue of inflation still very much at the forefront of investors' minds. Time now to turn to the corporate developments this week and uh, some of the main investment trust announcements. doing this in a truncated form now, but a reminder that if you are interested in following a particular investment trust for the Moneymaker Circle subscribers, we do summarise all the main corporate announcements from the investment trust sector with links to the relevant announcements so you can quickly follow up and see what the news has been. Uh, And we also provide an update on movements in share prices, NAVs and discounts for the last week and year to date. So that is... uh, way to find the more detail about these announcements. But uh, first of all, on the corporate front, there have been a few announcements I'm going to quickly summarise. Nothing particularly world-shaking. The Scottish Investment Trust, you may remember this is being amalgamated into the JP Morgan Global Growth and Income Trust after several years of relatively poor performance. This merger was announced in the autumn last year, but it's still not yet completed. But the end is now in sight. Shareholders in Scottish Investment Trust, uh, ticker SCIN, have voted overwhelmingly in favour of the final form of the proposed combination. And the shares in SAEIN and its debentures will be suspended on the 31st of August, that is next week. Uh, And a special resolution to place the fund into liquidation will be proposed at a second general meeting on the 31st of August And therefore, the expected effective date of the merger is the 31st of August next week. And a pre-liquidation interim dividend of 9.4p will be paid the day before to shareholders. 24 Income Fund, ticker TFIF, has uh, published a circular which uh, sets out the details of its uh, triennial realisation opportunity that it offers its shareholders. They can choose to realize their holding in the trust at a 2% discount to NAV as at the 18th of October. The price will be announced three days later and the realization shares will commence trading on the 25th of October. Uh, this trust, you might recall, is a debt fund that has so far met its uh, target of a 6 to 9% per annum target, uh, annual income return since launch. It's exceeded its 6p dividend. Every year, uh, and I suspect that this one will go through without much trouble, without many shareholders opting to realise their holdings. Elsewhere, we've heard of a couple of market listing moves. Uh, Rockwood Strategic, ticker R K W, which is uh, now managed by Harwood Capital after a bit of a run-in with the previous uh, managers, Gresham House. Uh, it's quite a small trust now, a little over 35 million market cap but it intends to apply for its shares to be admitted to trade on the premium segment of the LSE and convert to an investment trust, it's currently listed on AIM, uh, for the financial year commencing 1st of April 2023. Meanwhile, Digital 9 Infrastructure, ticker DGI 9, which came to the market not so long ago, has announced that it has received FCA approval for being admitted to the premium segment of the London Stock Exchange. That's going to take place next week as well. Uh, And the uh, company says it's agreed with the FCA to make some certain non-material amendments to investments policy as part of that process. Moving on to results, there have only been a few results of note this week. Uh, The most interesting ones have been in the North American sector, where we've heard from Pershing Square Holdings, the big investment trust managed by uh, a well-known US investor, Bill Ackman. And also from J.P. Morgan U.S. smaller companies and J.P. Morgan North American. Interesting to compare the results of these three trusts, all of which are reporting the interim results for the six-month period to the 30th of June. It's been a very tough period for the U.S. market, of course, with the S&P 500 down 20% in dollar terms uh, in the first six months of the year, going into what we technically call a bear market, uh, as we know. How has that affected these three trusts? Well, Pershing Square Holdings says that its NAV total return was down 26% against that 20% decline in the S&P 500. Uh, So that uh, was an underperformance of the market, and indeed it would have been even worse were it not for the interest rate swaption positions that the uh, trust has used rather effectively as protection against uh, sudden or unexpected market declines. If had it not. Being for those swaptions, the uh, performance of the trust would have been even worse, as they contributed nearly 10% positive contribution to the to the results in that period. So it's been a tough period for Pershing Square Holdings, which has had a very strong long-term track record, uh, but has been very lumpy uh, the way it's performed as a concentrated portfolio. But the main interest here is in the uh, interim. Results statement, uh, the comments, uh, quite a long section from Mr. Ackman on the issue of the discount at which Pershing Square Holdings trade. This has been persistent uh, and is very wide at more than 30%. And despite the fact that uh, the trust has bought back more than 22% of its shares since 2017 and also uh, announced a new dividend target, that discount has remained very stubbornly high. Mr. Ackman addresses that issue in his interviews, and uh, well worth a read. Uh, he makes the point rather pointedly that uh, of all the closed-end funds that his team could find, not just in the UK or the Channel Islands where Pershing Square Holdings is listed, but around the world, Pershing Square Holdings has the, the best track record of performance over the medium-longer term, and yet it's the one which has the biggest discount. So go figure is effectively what he's uh, trying to say. But his conclusion, he's not going to change the listing in Guernsey. He says the trust went into listing in the Channel Islands and uh, moving to investment trust status over here with its eyes fully open. And all they can do, he says, is to make sure that they do a better job of getting the word out at uh, what a great uh, trust it is, in his opinion. Uh, well, that's a very interesting way of having a look at that. Then from J.P. Morgan American Investment Trust, their NAV total return was down 8.4% in the six-month period against the S&P 500 Index total return of minus 10.8%. Well, hang on a minute. How can the S&P 500 Index total return be minus 10.8% for one trust and minus uh, 20% for Pershing Square Holdings? Well, the reason, of course, is that uh, there's been a very sharp movement in the sterling-dollar exchange rate. And that accounts for most of that difference. So, if you took that factor out of the equation, the performance of JP Morgan American Investment Trust would uh, have looked rather worse in headline terms. As it was, the share price total return was actually minus 11%, as the discount widened from uh, 0.5% all the way to 3.6%. Uh, the trust has been repurchasing shares at an average discount of 3.9%. What's interesting here is the uh, comments on the outlook from uh, the managers. JP Morgan, they say that financial conditions have rarely tightened more over a six-month period than they've done so far this year, thanks to the Fed's increasingly hawkish stance uh, and the risks of recession have undoubtedly increased accordingly. However, they say there's also some reasons to think that uh, some other changes, such as the fact that uh, there's been an improvement in banks' balance sheets, Uh, and that uh, many corporates have a lot of cash and do not appear overextended. Uh, Things like this, it means that, in their view, this reduces the prospects of a vicious credit crunch-induced recession. So their base case scenario, they say, is for a soft economic landing with any slowdown likely to be much less severe than the previous two downturns. Well, we'll have to see about that. Over at J.P. Morgan, US Smaller Companies, meanwhile, there, the NAV total return was uh, minus 14%. Uh, give or take against the Russell 2000 index decline of 14.7%. But the share price decline here was even greater as the negative total return of 25%, no less, so uh, pretty much on a par with Pershing Square Holdings, uh, as the shares moved out from a premium to a 12% discount, a big re rating there, derating there. Uh, that trust also has been repurchasing a few shares. Interesting there, the chairman, David Ross, who is a Scotsman, uh, said that over the first six months of the year, large cap stocks outperformed small cap and value continuing to outperform growth. And that was reflected, that was the reason behind the company's uh, NAV and share price performance. Difficult conditions for small cap stocks are likely to be ongoing. In his views, So, somewhat different uh, emphasis there from uh, the JP Morgan, uh, American Investment Trust managers. He says, with rising recession fears on the back of increasing interest rates. Uh, However, and there's always a however in these uh, statements, obviously, to keep spirits up. He says that valuations relative to large cap stocks are attractive and the investment manager's conviction in the longer term prospects of U.S. small caps remains strong. Well, they remain optimistic about the outlook for the company and the ability of the managers to find a wide range of innovative, fast growing and resilient companies at attractive valuations. Well, okay, that's another uh, hope for the future uh, but not says nothing particularly encouraging about the short term next in this section blackrock well mining uh, ticker brwm a trust that has now been going for nearly 30 years will be celebrating its 30th anniversary next year they've also had interim results out for the 6 months to 30th june and saw an nav total return of minus 1.7% against a 4.3% decline in their reference index, which is a rather complicated composite benchmark measuring mining and metal commodities returns. Share price total return, though, was slightly up at 1.8% as the discount narrowed to 2% from 5.3%. They have been issuing shares as well while the stock was trading at a premium, uh, raising £30 However, this was very much a period of, well, not two halves, but of two phases. First five months of the year were very positive. The uh, trust did very well on the back of the soaring commodity prices. Uh, But then it all fell apart in June, uh, which was the worst month for the reference commodity index, the managers say, that they've seen in in 10 years. It was down 15.9% in one month, uh, driven by this change in market sentiment. Uh, uh, If you recall, it was in June that we saw the start of the equity rally, but also growing concerns about the risk of a recession uh, arising from the uh, interest rate policy of the central banks uh, and other developments around the world. So that again is well worth reading the manager's report there. That's managed by Evie Hambro and uh, Olivia Markham. Uh, Evie Hambro has actually been involved in this trust from the uh, very beginning uh, when he first uh, joined the city. Uh, and a very experienced performer. And he's very positive about the outlook for mining and metals for reasons that you can read in his his statement. Along with some monthly updates, uh, we've also heard from a couple of private equity trusts reporting their interim figures for the same six-month period. CT Private Equity Trust, ticker CTPE, formerly managed by BMO, but now in the Columbia Threadneedle stable. Their NAV total return over the six-month period was plus 4.3%, which compared with a 4.6% decline in the FTSE All-Share Index. Share price total return, though, was uh, minus 8.4%, as the discount widened right up from 23.6% to 33%. This trust, uh, in common with uh, many other private equity trusts, the discounts remain stubbornly wide uh, for reasons that we've discussed on this podcast many times. And this private equity trust is one that uh, has actually been repurchasing shares in an attempt to uh, uh, control the discount, but so far without much success, evidently. We've also had a second quarter update from Chrysalis Investments. Uh, This is a trust which invests mainly in early stage or pre-market companies, uh, has a very concentrated portfolio and has been having a very torrid time of late. Uh, The shares are still trading at a discount of more than 50%, following uh, the news that uh, a number of its key holdings have been uh, uh, completed funding rounds at much lower levels than their previous valuations. Uh, Notable among them Klarna, the lending company, which uh, accounts for 17% of the Chrysalis portfolio. That has been marked down by nearly 80% uh, since uh, March this year following a new funding round. And there have also been uh, write downs in the value of some of its other big holdings, such as Starling Bank, Brandtech and Wise. Been a lot of controversy around this trust following its uh, massive performance fee that was awarded to the managers at Jupiter uh, last year, promptly followed by a very sharp decline in the share price. Uh, that caused a lot of discontent. Uh, And uh, one of the changes here is that uh, the Trust has established a new independent valuation committee, and this is the first quarter in which it's actually shown the results of its work, and it's been a poor performance. It is a remarkable story how Chrysalis has fallen out of favour over the last three years. We've seen uh, its uh, NAV rise by Uh, 47% while its share price has actually fallen by 40%. So an increase in NAV, but a sharp fall in the share price as the discount has uh, widened out from a premium rating before. Uh, I can't recall many instances where there have been such a a wide disparity between NAV and share price uh, performance, and it's perhaps an indication of the way in which the, the trust has lost some shareholder goodwill. Uh, however, it's fair to say, as the managers point out, that there have been significant rallies in uh, many of the peer group companies that it compares its holdings to. Uh, and they have been up quite strongly in this uh, rally we've seen in the, in the equity market since mid-June, at least a rally until uh, this uh, Friday when uh, uh, Mr. Powell uh, dampened spirits somewhat. Uh, next, I'm going to mention briefly uh, some of the Renewable Energy Trusts, which have reported this week. Bluefield Solar Income Fund, ticker BSIF, and uh, Next Energy Solar Fund, ticker NESF. Uh, They've both produced Q2 22 updates and uh, reporting strong NAV gains. 10% in the case of Bluefield Solar and 7.2% in the case of Next Energy Solar Fund. Uh, These increases have been driven by increase in power price forecasts. Well, not much surprise about that. And uh, upward revision in their short-term inflation assumptions. Uh, Both trusts mentioned those as the dominant factors behind their strong performance. Uh, And then finally, in this shortened section on results, I'd like to mention Axiom European Financial Debt Fund, ticker AXI. It had some interim results for six months, 30th of June. Uh, But the main news here is that, as the board announced recently, it intends to offer shareholders an exit from this trust. It thinks it no longer has a viable future uh, as an investment trust. And therefore, next year, there will be an opportunity for shareholders to choose between a cash exit uh, and a rollover into an open-ended vehicle run by the same manager, Axiom, who specialise in specialist debt investments. Uh, But it's been a a relatively disappointing life as an investment trust for this particular one. So it'll be joining the ranks of those which are no longer going to be in the investment trust sector from next year. So that's a quick summary of the results. As I say, you can uh, find out all the other announcements by logging into the Moneymakers Circle. If you are a subscriber, I should perhaps mention that the cost of subscribing is a very modest two pounds a week and uh, you get a range of other content as well. So maybe you'll like to do that. Finally, I'm going to move across and talk to uh, Emma Bird about what's been happening in the commercial property sector. I spoke to her earlier this week. So earlier this week, I talked to Emma Bird, who is the property specialist and also now head of investment trust research at Winterflood Securities. Welcome onto the podcast, Emma. I thought what we'd do is we have a quick look back over the last few weeks. We've uh, had the latest NAV updates, at least from most of the uh, general commercial property trusts. I thought we'd talk about those. And then we might also have a look at one or two of the more specialist uh, vehicles as well. But in general terms... What has the uh, reporting season for the second quarter for the Commercial Property Trust been like? What have you uh, taken away from that?
2: So, in general, all funds posted positive capital value and NAV uplifts, although there was a general slowdown in the pace of these uplifts. So, at at a benchmark level, the MSCI balanced monthly UK property index registered a 2.4% increase in capital values in Q2, But this compares with a 4.4% increase in Q1. So that highlights the slowdown. And a number of the managers within the quarterly updates highlighted the slowdown as well. So in general, it was positive for the quarter, but the outlook was becoming more cautious going forward.
0: And is that mainly the effect of rising interest rates or is it the fear of economic slowdown or some combination of the two?
2: I think it's a combination of the two. Definitely rising interest rates is having an impact and expected to hit valuations going forward as it will affect the yield advantage that real estate has over other asset classes and can also potentially affect the costs of the individual funds if they have floating rate debt. But equally, a potential recession in the UK would be negative as well particularly for subsectors, property subsectors such as retail or or leisure that are vulnerable to consumer spending slowdowns.
0: So just as we thought that we were finally sort of getting back to uh, normality, new worries have come around. Of the main commercial property trusts in the general UK commercial property sector, do any of them stand out for having produced slightly better returns than the others? And if so, what are the reasons for that?
2: So the best return was from AEW UK REIT, that saw its NAV per share rise by 4.9% over the quarter, and it delivered a NAV total return of 6.5%. That was driven by a like-for-like increase in the property portfolio valuation of 4.5%, uh, which in turn was driven by a nearly 18% like like increase in the office portfolio and that was a result of the East Point Business Park in Oxford that it owns that was revalued for the first time since it was placed under offer and that saw a significant valuation uplift so that was uh, driven by one particular asset. That fund is also the only general commercial property investment trust that didn't cut its dividend at all during the pandemic. So it's maintained its 2p per share per quarter dividend target throughout the pandemic and continued it last quarter as well. It was uncovered in Q2 as its earnings are temporarily being impacted by a couple of sales that have been agreed with vacancy requirements. So they're vacant at the moment, but the managers are hopeful that once those sales complete and one has actually completed post-period end And those proceeds have been reinvested that they should be able to return to a fully covered dividend.
0: What other trusts stood out for you uh, in the reporting results, either for good or relatively poor performance?
2: I think an interesting trend that came out of a couple of them was that despite delivering positive NAV increases, quite a few of them highlighted the discount widening and the negative share price return that they'd seen and therefore introduced or recommenced share buyback programmes, which is not too common to see in alternative assets or real assets such as property due to their illiquid nature. So it's interesting to see quite a few share buyback programmes happening there. So Aberdeen Property Income Trust, which used to be Standard Life Investments Property Income Trust, restarted a buyback programme in the period and repurchased 5.6 million shares. Balanced Commercial Property Trust which used to be BMO Commercial Property Trust, continued its share buyback programme and repurchased 15.5 million shares. CT Property Trust, which used to be BMO Real Estate Investments, started a buyback programme post the period and um, after it disposed of a property. So it used those proceeds to try and control the discount. And there are a couple of others across um, some specialist sectors as well. I thought that was something interesting to take away from the results.
0: Have those moves been effective so far in terms of, you mentioned the discounts obviously have widened out. The trend has been discounts coming in, but now they've reversed a bit. Has has they had much effect, these uh, latest uh, buyback proposals or announcements?
2: They haven't caused big share price increases, but I think what it's done is help to mitigate any further falls and hopefully will increase investor confidence in the risk of further downside derating.
0: So what's a range of discounts now we're looking across the general UK commercial property sector? It's quite a wide range. I mean, there's a lot of different uh, experience in there, I think.
2: Uh, yes, there is. So within the, the general commercial property sector, the widest discount is for UK commercial property REIT. That's on a 35% discount. That fund isn't buying back shares. But interestingly, it has recently declared a special dividend payable in, in August, reflecting strong realised gains and also noted that that was in an attempt to help close the discount. So they've tried to, to encourage an investor demand via a special dividend, but that's still on the widest discount. And then on the other end of the spectrum is LXI REIT on a 2% premium. That hasn't announced a 30th of June NAV, so that will be a premium to the the 31st of March NAV. But that is a very large fund after its recent merger with Secure Income REIT and has a high proportion of inflation-linked income. So I think it's seen demand from investors looking for inflation-linked income.
0: And have you seen, by talking to clients and your colleagues in the firm, have you seen any significant levels of demand for commercial property shares in particular? I mean, has there been any uh, unusual rate of activity, perhaps driven by these discounts beginning to widen again a little bit?
2: Um, I think the summer's always pretty quiet, so haven't seen any significant increase in demand. Before the Q2 NAVs were announced, we thought that potentially we could see some increased demand and potential positive share price moves if they posted positive results, but that didn't appear to happen. So we'll keep an eye on that one.
0: And in terms of the yields that are out there now, obviously, the, you know, the wider the discount, the higher the yield at least appears to be. It may not be, if it's not covered, it may be an issue. But um, of the main commercial property what are, trusts, what are we looking at at the moment? And how does that compare to the average over some recent period?
2: The average yield is about four and a half to five percent at the moment, as Discounts are wider. As you said, the yields are higher than they would be as a result of the the share price falls. And a number of them are starting um, or continuing to rebuild their dividends back towards pre-pandemic levels. So we could start to see those yields rise further if dividends are rebuilt further and there isn't a re-rating to go alongside it.
0: And obviously, as you say, there's been a bit of rebranding of uh, some of these commercial property trusts due to takeover activity amongst the fund management groups including Standard Life and uh, BMO. What is the kind of general tone that you're getting out of talking to the, the managers of these commercial property trusts? Are they uh, becoming anxious a little bit about the uh, economic environment?
2: Yes, I think they are a bit more cautious than that they have been, but they do believe in the long-term potential of the asset class. Um, and actually, I think that could be a more interesting time for more generalist funds rather than specialist funds uh, which have been more popular with investors and have tended to trade at higher ratings over the last couple of years. Whereas now with sectors such as industrial logistics potentially facing more headwinds than they have done previously and those specialist funds now trading on discounts as opposed to premiums, historically these funds have the flexibility to invest in other assets and other sectors that they find more interesting. So there's positive outlooks on their specific asset class in, in those terms as well.
0: Yeah, well, let's mention a couple of the other specialist sectors then. I mean, you mentioned the logistics. So we've got three trusts in there, haven't we? We've got uh, Warehouse REIT, uh, Urban Logistics REIT, and uh, the big boy, which is Tritax Big Box, which has uh, sold off pretty dramatically. I think following that announcement from Amazon that it uh, was needed less Uh, big box space, if you like, and that must have had an impact on the yields in that sector as well. So presumably that means, therefore, it's going to be much harder for them to raise more funds through secondary uh, issuance if they're trading at a discount, obviously. So what do you think the outlook for that sector is? I mean, and and how do you explain the way that the discounts have moved there?
2: Yes, so there has been a significant sell-off in that sector, as you said, on the back of the Amazon announcement, as well as general uh, macroeconomic uncertainty, With the potential for less demand for logistics going forward in in a potential recessionary environment. So they have been hit hard. Interestingly, the yields still aren't as high as the general commercial property funds, and actually, some of the discounts aren't as wide anymore. They have seen a bit of a rebound. In that sector, Tri Tax Big Box does stand out. So that's on a 26% discount at the moment compared to warehouse REIT and urban logistics REIT on a six and seven percent discount, respectively, which could partially be explained by its bigger exposure to Amazon. So it was hit harder in the initial sell-off. And I also think that there could be concerns around its exposure to development assets and spec development. It's got a big development portfolio um, and has some ongoing construction where those assets have not been let. So in a more difficult letting environment, um, if companies aren't taking on as much space as was expected, they could be vulnerable there. So I think that's probably why that's on the on the larger discount.
0: What have the management of Tridox big box been saying? I mean, when the Amazon announcement first came out, I think they were implying that this has all been a bit of an overreaction by the market. Are they still saying that now?
2: Yes, I think that's still definitely their view. They're still confident in their strategy and the overall strong tailwinds for the sector. They acknowledged the Amazon announcement in their experience. I, I think it's concentrated in the US, the issues that Amazon noted with the excess capacity. And that's mainly focused in the US in their opinion. And they think that the structural tailwinds of increased e-commerce demand, more onshoring, and other tailwinds specifically exacerbated by the pandemic are are still strong. So they think that their discount is unwarranted, yeah.
0: Yes, you rarely hear management saying the opposite, of course, but uh, (laughs) (laughs) it is uh, an issue for that sector, I think, now. Very interesting. What about the healthcare sector? A couple of trusts there. We have Target Healthcare REIT and Impact Healthcare REIT, and they're still trading... uh, at a small premium, I think, aren't they? Or are they around par? I'm looking at the latest figures. Uh, And they're still offering a decent yield, you know, 5%, 5 5.5%, maybe even near a 6% despite that uh, good rating. Do you still see a lot of demand coming from there? What's been happening in that sector?
2: Yes, so they're both trading at a small premium to their latest NAVs. And as you said, still attractive yields as well at between 55 and and 6%. So Impact Healthcare REIT had it interim results to the 30th of June out. Recently, it delivered a 6.2% now for total return. So on track to deliver its 9% per annum total return target, delivered a like-for-like valuation uplift of 4.9%. And a lot of this uplift was driven by the uh, inflation-linked rent reviews in its underlying rents which I think is a key attraction of the fund specifically, or particularly in the current inflationary environment. It does have caps on almost all of its inflation-linked leases. So the rental uplifts will be capped at 4 or 5%, so they won't capture the entirety of the current elevated levels of inflation. But this is Done deliberately in order to protect the underlying tenants from suffering too much uh, cost increases. So it means that this income is resilient as well. So yeah, that continued to collect 100% of rent delivered on its dividend target, which was fully covered by earnings as well. Target Healthcare REIT published a quarterly update for the three months to 30th of June that delivered a total return of 2% for the quarter and a 0.9% like-for-like valuation uplift, again driven by its inflation-linked rent reviews. This also delivered on its uh, dividend targets for the financial year, although rent collection was lower than 100% as it was for impact, and that meant that the dividend wasn't fully covered either. But the managers are hopeful that they have a path to deliver full dividend cover in the near future.
0: I mean, that is one of the issues. If inflation does go as high as the Bank of England's suggesting, which is, you know, 10%, and it's just this big even higher, some forecasting, that does mean that the uh, advantage of these index linked leases, as you say, uh, they're not as great as they could be because you're going to lag behind if you're only getting 4% and inflation is going up at uh, 10% or more. But that doesn't seem to have affected the way investors view these particular vehicles at the moment. Uh, is there not a concern, though, that? Given the crisis that we're facing and the fact that it seems likely that the government, the new prime minister, whoever that turns out to be, is going to uh, face a very difficult financial crunch over the uh, over the winter because of the need to uh, give money to those affected by the energy crisis and so on. They're going to be looking at the ways that uh, spending is done across the piece, are they not? Is there not some sort of threat that down the line, not immediately but down the line, there might be some threat to this kind of model that the health care trust and others like them are uh, pursuing in terms of having their index link leases sort of underwritten effectively by by the government or local authority?
2: So for both Target and Impact, they also have um, exposure to private pay residents. So the funds have rental agreements leases with The healthcare providers, the tenants of their care homes, but the underlying residents that the sources of income come from a variety of sources being, as you say, local authority, but also NHS and also private pay. So I think the managers are aware of political risk, and if that was to become an issue, they could look to increase the proportion paid by by private pay. But in general, they have long-term leases with their care home provider tenants. And so they they will still have to continue to pay the rent that they've agreed. And so I think rental cover at the operator level is something that they look at. So for impact, the 12-month rent cover at the underlying tenant level is 1.85 times. So their revenue is 185% of the rent that they pay. So they have a buffer there that if they face increased costs or reduced funding from the government, they should still be able to meet their rents. It's also that political risk is an issue for other funds in the property sector, such as Civitas Social Housing and, and Triple Point Social Housing that receive 100% kind of government-backed of revenues. So they're the ones that will probably be more susceptible to changes in government regulation
0: so that was uh, Emma Bird, Head of Investment Trust Research at Winterfell Securities and the uh, Commercial Property Specialist Analyst as well. That brings us to an end of the podcast this week. Uh, next week, we'll have more guest speakers to discuss what's been going on in the investment trust market. It'll be interesting to see how the markets continue to react to the uh, central bank announcements. It does seem quite likely that there will be a further period of weakness. Uh, That would be my perspective anyway, but uh, who knows? We'll find out in due course. So thank you for listening and hope to speak to you again next week.
1: This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, wwwmoney to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.